From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Illinois voters have approved an amendment strengthening workers' rights. This adds the right to collective bargaining to the state constitution, allowing workers to negotiate wages, hours, and working conditions. One thing it would do is prevent so-called right-to-work laws, which are really laws that were designed to attack collective bargaining. And it sends a huge message to the rest of the nation, Illinois is just not a very good pro-business, pro-employment place. What was labeled the Workers' Rights Amendment passed in the recent election. It was a win for labor, and we'll talk more about that coming up. Some changes in leadership at the Illinois State House, and he's back, Donald Trump running for president again. How do Illinois Republicans feel about that? We'll discuss it all coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler. He's a professor emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. And Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. Also with us this week, we have Greg Hines, political writer and blogger for Crane Chicago Business. And Greg, it's always good to have you back with us. Always, always a pleasure, Sean. So, Greg, I'll go to you first. Illinois voters approving this amendment to the state's constitution. It guarantees the right to bargain collectively. How big of a deal actually is it? Well, it uh, depends who you talk to, but I'd, I'd say a pretty big deal. Um, the labor folks certainly put uh, all kinds of time and energy into it, uh, and uh, the business folks have uh, done more than a little cut-cutting. Uh, the real question is is whether it does just what it says on its face or whether it does more. What it says on its face is, is significant. It says that you have an absolute right to uh, to uh, collectively bargain and form, try to form a union and uh, attempt to negotiate a contract. Um, it also clearly says that Illinois is not going to become a right-to-work state, uh, bills that would prevent uh, legislation that has been adopted in many states that would prevent union shops uh, uh, cannot be passed at all in Illinois. Um, the question is are the kind of intangibles. Um, how big of a black eye does it give Illinois' business reputation? Folks in the business community who will tell you that uh, certain kinds of industries, like big automobile factories, just will not go to, uh, to uh, the states that uh, uh, have these kinds of provisions in, uh, in their legislation, uh, their laws. Um, uh, there's also some ambiguity in the wording uh, that both sides argued about uh, because it, it refers not only to salaries and wages, but, but health and welfare at work. Uh, the union folks say that at-work provision pretty narrows it down, uh, but uh, uh, the other side argued that, for instance, uh, as happened up here in Chicago in the last teachers' negotiations, that, uh, that certainly in the public sector, unions will be bargaining not just for labor and wages, but uh, all kinds of other things. Now, uh, in Chicago, uh, the union wanted uh, guarantees of subsidized housing for interest. Uh, for, for example, uh, to be uh, added, uh, even though that doesn't have anything directly to do with education. Um, I've even heard a theory that, that this could set up uh, the legal basis uh, for a challenge to the state's property tax caps, because uh, in some cases they would limit the ability of unions to get in a high inflation environment, wage increases. So as usual, the lawyers are going to get their cut here, and they're going to fight it out. Uh, but, but clearly... Uh, for unions that were really worried that uh, in another era we'd have kind of a Scott Walker-type uh, governor take over and do all kinds of terrible things, for them, this is a pretty big victory. Yeah, and Greg, I think also 
uh, for something this big, and you would think, uh, of course, there's opposition on the other side, the uh, the business lobby. I really didn't hear a whole lot uh, on this necessarily, especially from the opponents going into the election, it, it seemed to me, compared to what you would have thought you would have heard. Uh, I agree. Uh, the uh, the opposition was kind of headed by the Alamai Policy Institute, which is this, this kind of right-leaning think tank up here and, and its friends. Uh, the State Chamber of Commerce did a fair amount of stuff, but uh, there was no huge uh, big uh, big ad buy um, that may say something about uh, the relative lack of clout of the state's business community more than anything else. But uh, uh, they could have been more visible. Uh, and frankly, if they had been more visible, they might have beat the sucker. It only got, it looks like, 52 or 53%. And it got that only because here up here in Chicago, instead of the proposition being at the end of the ballot, it was at the beginning of the ballot where people would see it right away and vote for it. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, the business guys chose to play it the way they did. Yeah, Charlie, was that a mistake, you think, that maybe uh, they didn't call enough attention to this? Because when, I, when you hear the term workers' rights, well, everybody's for that. But when you read between the, the lines, I'm sure there's a lot of people who might have thought differently about it. Well, it, it, it strikes me that the, what would you say, the business community and the big money Republican types decided to spend their money elsewhere. They put a lot of money, for example, into Supreme Court races. Uh, they put a lot of money into trying bring Darren Bailey home, the Republican gubernatorial candidate. And the big money donors for the Republican Party just aren't there anymore. Uh, Ken Griffin moved out of town. Richard Uline, I guess, would be about the only one left. And I think part of the impetus behind the desire to get this amendment on the ballot and approved was the labor folks and folks who are interested in unions saw what could have happened when Bruce Rauner was governor. Rauner came in and he made no mistake about it. He was anti-union, pro-corporate interests. We had a budget impasse for a couple of years in part because Rauner wanted to allow local governments to impose right to work laws to be against unions. And I think the labor movement realized, okay, we got rid of Rauner and we've got a pro-labor government now in Governor Pritzker, but who knows what might happen in the future. So I think they had a lot more at stake, so to speak. And it's interesting too, because we, we obviously don't have all the results yet. And that we won't know the, the official results until they're actually certified the first week of December by the State Board of Elections. From what I've heard and from people I've talked to, the amendment did much better in a lot of the downstate counties, southern and central Illinois, than Pritzker did, for example, which suggests that there are still people who are, who are Republican voters, but they also believe in unions or union members. Well, Charlie, also this narrow margin of victory, I mean, to change the state's constitution, of course, most of us are familiar with the 60% threshold of support that it needs, but this is the other way that that, uh, that an amendment can get approved by voters. And as Greg was mentioning, this is, this is pretty tight. It almost seems as though, you know, and, and nothing against this specific piece of legislation, but it almost seems like that maybe that's a little, uh, that maybe that's an area that needs to be taken a look at. You know, if you're going to go through and make a major change to the state's constitution, maybe you need more support than even what this got. Well, actually, uh, if you want to go back 
I'm doing the math in my head, 70 or 80 years under the old constitution, the 1870 constitution, it said that a constitutional amendment could be approved with two thirds support for that amendment. Actually, I, I was mistaken. It required a simple majority, but because of the separate ballot, people were just discarding that ballot. And so the gateway amendment provided the second avenue where two thirds of the people who voted on the issue itself supported ratification, it was in. But a hundred and some years ago, when that was put into effect, there was a whole different system of voting. This was before we had primaries, before we had established political parties as we have them now. And so you would go in to vote and the representative, the Democratic representative would give you a Democratic ballot, pretty much all filled out, including support for an amendment. And it wasn't until the early part of the 20th century when we started having separate ballots once upon a time when there were paper ballots and the constitutional amendment was on a separate paper ballot, a blue ballot, and people just didn't bother with it. And so for, oh, any number of years, there was a move afoot to try and change the requirement in the constitution to have what wound up being called a gateway amendment. And that was approved, I believe in 1950. And that said, there's two ways that you can ratify an amendment to the Constitution. One is if two-thirds of the people who actually vote on the issue vote for it. And the other is if a majority of the people who vote in the election vote for it. And so when the new Constitution was drawn up, the same two-test phase was just incorporated. The vote margin was reduced from two-thirds to 60%. So this isn't something that's new or it's not something that's wasn't well thought out at the time. I think in a, in a sense, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that, it, that an amendment will have not gotten the 60% of those voting on it, but will have passed because of a majority of those who voted in the election supported it. Well, I think you, I think you, I think you point to something really interesting there, Charlie. Um, you are correct. Normally, we don't worry about this 50% rule because uh, it, nothing gets 50% because normally constitutional proposals on the ballot are buried way on page 16. You have to really go look for it. And most people at that point are tired. They've had the vote on up in Cook County on 500 judges and whatever. They don't get to the constitutional amendment. But in this case, at least up in Chicago and Cook County, I'm not sure about the rest of the state. Uh, but I know when I walked into my polling place, the constitutional amendment was number one, was right up front. It was the very first thing on the ballot. And I think that was a very shrewd move by whoever was behind all that, because that probably got them the two or three or four points they needed, uh, uh, because it didn't get it only got something like 58 uh, percent of the people who, who voted on the proposition itself. Uh, but that brought it that brought it right up, and when with that nice language, workers' rights, who's against workers' rights? I think that's what probably did it. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I don't know if anybody's done a study. What was the ballot placement across all the hundred and some odd uh, election jurisdictions? Here in Sangamon County, it was the very first thing on the ballot. And it's not that we have a, a Democratic county clerk who is trying to promote the amendment. Our county clerk is a Republican, but he's in terms of administrating elections. He's very much 
nonpartisan, very efficient, very much go by the book kind of guy. And so on the ballot, and I voted by mail, my ballot came right there. Very first thing was the amendment. I don't know what it would have been like up in the Chicago, in the, in the collar counties. Greg, you probably voted in the city, right? I did. <clears throat> what was it like in, in suburban Cook? Uh, I, I, I know I know in suburban Cook, I believe it was also first. I'm not sure about the colors. Yeah, yeah. That might be interesting to look at and see if there's some correlation between ballot placement and how the thing did. Well, you're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, along with Shirley Wheeler. And our guest this week is Greg Hines with Crane Chicago Business. We'll continue to follow any possible fallout from the Workers' Rights Amendment as it moves forward. But let's move on. A big week at the Illinois Capitol as the uh, lawmakers all returned following the election. And speaking of fallout, there was uh, some changes in the House and Senate Republican caucuses. In fact, both of them electing new leadership. Tony McCombie, a representative from Savannah, becomes the first woman to be the House GOP chair. And Senate Republicans choosing John Curran of Downers Grove as their minority party leader there. That uh, he replaces Dan McConkie, who had held the role, and in the House, uh, McCombie replacing Jim Durkin, who decided not to run again. Uh, Greg, uh, is this going to matter with, with Democrats with such large majorities in the Illinois General Assembly? I mean, you got to start somewhere if you're Republicans, but is it really? are we going to really notice a difference there? You know, that's a really good question, Sean, and uh, my hunch is that probably not. Um, Republicans now are just structurally in a terrible spot in the state. Um, uh, their party nationally has gone way to the right on social issues, but that going to the way to the right on social issues like abortion has just made them unable to win up in the suburbs, which is the balance of power. Uh, and, you know, doing fine, doing great downstate uh, with uh, Mary Miller's kind of voters <clears throat> it may be great for Mary Miller, but it doesn't doesn't get you anywhere close to majority uh, uh, it gets you it gets you a super minority status which is the case for Republicans both in the House and the Senate so I'm not sure what they what they do I thought Jim Durkin the outgoing um, uh, Republican leader of the House actually put together a pretty good campaign pretty good teams good issues uh, good visibility uh, a fair amount of money but he got crushed uh, uh, they now have. I think there's fewer uh, fewer Republicans now in the Illinois House than in many decades, maybe a record. Um, it almost it, it, they almost need the Democrats to throw to screw up things themselves to you know, step on their own banana peel and, and make the kinds of mistakes that they can capitalize on. But you know, even even that two years ago when we were in the middle of Mike Maddox and had just been indicted, that wasn't enough to. Uh, uh, to get them uh, uh, over the hump. Um, it just strikes me that, that uh, this has become a blue state now, uh, and until national politics and what the parties stand for changes, uh, Republicans in the state are going to have a very difficult time competing. Yeah, and Shirley, last week we talked a little bit about Republicans have a couple of directions they can go, and one of those directions, which they'll hear from some of the more conservative members of the party, is we need to be more conservative than we have been. Uh, that apparently has not been working so far, but that, that's not necessarily going to be off the table, I'm guessing, going forward. No, and that's the thing that surprises me. Um, in a sense, politics has a couple of facets. 
One is you have policy positions and you want to be true to your positions. And the other one is you actually have to win. And sometimes you have to modify those positions to be able to win. And unfortunately for the Republicans, it seems like the, the overall mood or the overall spirit is you have to be 100% on board and otherwise we don't want you. And as we've remarked in the past, somebody like a Jim Thompson or a Jim Egger uh, could not get elected in Illinois. Now, they would be beaten in a Republican primary. Were they on the ballot, they'd win pretty overwhelmingly because they were people who were pragmatic. I shouldn't say were because Jim Egger is, is still with us and still active. But their administrations were pragmatic. They could work with labor, they could work with Democrats, and they achieved a lot. But if you come in and it's, you have to agree with us 100%, and unfortunately, we don't pay so much attention now to financial stuff, fiscal conservatism, the way we were back in the day. Now it's all about social issues. It's all about being against the lives, being against the woke. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, those ideas aren't the ones that the majority of the Illinois citizens embrace, particularly in the suburban area where the, the basically voting power and ability to influence elections has the extent to which it's, it's evolved over the years to suburbia. Yeah, and we've also discussed the fact that Republicans are being are, are losing on the fundraising end as well. You know, the people like Ken Griffin moving out of the state, is he going to continue to give to Illinois Republicans? And Greg, I don't know if that's the case or not, but at at this point, it seems as though if I'm if I'm somebody with some deep pockets, I'm going to probably lobby Democrats because they're in control and I'm going to try to get them to modify their positions a bit than I am going to try to the yeoman's effort of getting Republicans elected. Yeah, I think uh, I think that, that that's absolutely right, uh, uh, John. Um, uh, one of the stories that uh, really hasn't been written too much, kind of the uh, the aging and the brain drain uh, at the high levels of the Republican fundraising establishment. I mean, the guy who for many years I thought was kind of the, the soul of the, of the Republican Party here was Greg Bass, who for a good 10 or 15 years, he, he used his position as head of the Manufacturers Association to raise money, uh, to pick key people. He had a polling operation uh uh, well, he's he's retired. Uh, Ron Gidwitz, who uh, was one of the top fundraisers in that area, has, has focused now almost completely on uh, on, on national races. Um, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Ken Griffin's gone. <clears throat> Dickie Line is uh, is hit and miss. It kind of depends on what Dan Proft wants to do. Um, and the party hasn't really replaced those people. Um, you know, I haven't. I have. Uh, Unlimited faith in, in one, one, one of my ancient political roles is that whenever any any political group stays in power long enough, they'll eventually cut, tie the rope and jump. Uh, that will happen with Democrats in this state one way or another. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to have to wait for it because the Republicans don't seem to be able to fix their way out of this situation. Yeah, and in the next election, Charlie, a real good possibility that you know Donald Trump could be on the ticket again. He has not fared well in the state of Illinois. Certainly, a lot of Democrats, uh, or people that are more hardcore Democrats, will will work against a Donald Trump presidency or or candidacy, I should say. So they've got that. You know what's going on at the national level. They also have to contend with. Yeah, and particularly in Illinois, I think uh, Trump 
got really whacked pretty solidly the two times that he ran for president here in the state of Illinois. As a matter of fact, there was a cartoon, I think it was in the Trib, either today or yesterday, uh, where it has an outline of obviously Donald Trump. He's standing there and he's saying, oh, the people are cheering. They really love me. And one of his aides is whispering, actually, those are Democrats. And I think in Illinois, if, if Trump is, is the Republican nominee, that's going to turn off a lot of people. It won't necessarily convert what we call the moderate Republicans, the, the old-time Republicans who were um, the, the people who elected guys like Thompson and Edgar, Jim Ryan or George Ryan. They won't decide they're going to vote for the Democrat. On the other hand, they won't be very enthusiastic about turning out to vote at all. When it comes to Trump, uh, Greg, you wrote about this. You talked to several uh, high-ranking Republicans in the state of Illinois, people who have been in the public eye quite a bit, and their thoughts on the specter of another Trump candidacy. What did they have to say? It was uh, almost unanimous thumbs down. I talked to uh, I talked to Pat Brady, the former state Republican chairman. I talked to Jim Durkin, the uh, outgoing uh, top uh, Illinois House Republican. I talked to Dan Cronin, the uh, outgoing uh, board chairman in DuPage County, which for for decades was kind of the center of all things Republican in Illinois. And they all said essentially the same thing. Trump's going to hurt us. He ain't going to play in this state. Uh, Charlie was right. Uh, uh, Trump lost Illinois by roughly a million votes each of the last two times. Um, I can't imagine he's going to do any better now. But his party has the party has changed. Uh, the, the, the moderates uh, either don't vote or they become Republican. And what's left is more conservative. You had a classic matchup in this state just a few months ago for Congress between Rodney Davis, who's kind of quintessential traditional uh, 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 fiscal conservative, uh, running against Mary Miller, who's very wound up, uh, uh, anti-woke, uh, uh, take him out and hang him kind of Republican. And Davis got his clock cleaned. Um, and uh, so Mary Miller this week tweeted that, oh, she's all for Trump, rah, rah, I assume Darren Bailey's going to be there. But uh, – uh, north of I-80 uh, and maybe north of 70, uh, I'm not sure who is going to be with him. Yeah, and that, that has to hurt, I would think, even just finding candidates. I mean, why put in the effort to be on the ballot if you feel as though maybe you're in a, a tighter district, let's say, running for the legislature or for Congress, and you feel if Trump's going to hurt you, that's a little bit out of your control. So I, I think they could even have trouble, I would think, finding people who want to run. Yeah, even uh, I even talked to Roger Clare, who was probably the most prominent Republican uh, uh, in this part of the state to be for Trump last time. Um, uh, he, the mayor, a longtime mayor of Bolingbrook, a member of the state central committee, recognized party leader. I talked to him this week, and he said, "Hey, I looked at what happened on Tuesday. Uh, Trump got involved, and we lost. Uh, I think that Ron DeSantis would be a great guy." <laughs> But we'll see yeah. how how that all plays out, Charlie. That and and DeSantis, you know, is is, is he certainly is conservative. Uh, he brings his own baggage, I would think, uh, when it comes to a, a Democratic perspective. But you know, is he better than Trump, at least from what we're seeing right now? I'm not that familiar with Ron DeSantis. Uh, whether or not a guy like DeSantis will actually get the nomination if there's a fight or if the, the, the Trump part of the Republican base will want to go for the dear leader once again. And I'm guessing that whether it's DeSantis or Trump, um, 
couple of years from now, neither is going to do very well in Illinois. Well, just a couple of minutes left here, and I want to save that to talk about another big election that will be happening much sooner, and that is the race for Chicago mayor. We did learn this week that former Governor Pat Quinn held a news conference to let us know he is not going to be seeking that office. Where does that leave things at this point, uh, Greg, going into uh, uh, the, the filing period, which is coming up? Filing starts on Monday. Uh, we know of uh, at least 10 candidates that you have heard of. Uh, who say they're going to file. Uh, I assume there's going to be several others beyond that. We'll find out how many actually make it to the ballot. That's a more difficult challenge than you might think. Uh, in this town, you need uh, 12,500 good, unique signatures on your petitions, people who are registered voters who haven't signed somebody else's petitions. And you have to run this gauntlet of election wires who would just pick it to death if you have a comma in the wrong spot. Oh, we got to get rid of that, throw him off the ballot or throw her off the ballot. Um, I mean, famously, that's how Barack Obama got his start in politics. Uh, uh, he uh, was running for state senator against a Democratic incumbent named Alice Palmer, and he got knocked her off the ballot on a technicality. So we'll see how many folks actually make it through the gauntlet. Uh, but it, by all indications, it's going to be a wild and woolly race. Twenty-five percent probably will make it to the runoff, and there's almost certainly going to be a runoff. Nobody's going to get 50%. Lori Lightfoot has some money. She's the incumbent, and normally I would say that gives her the, the edge up, but there's a lot of people who don't like her. Um, so I'd say buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be an interesting interesting fight. Well, just uh, with about 30 seconds here left, but what are some of the issues for those people who are downstate that don't follow Chicago politics as much? Where is she the weakest, in your point of view, going into a re-election? Uh, weakest issues, uh, crime. Um uh, the city has finally turned. The numbers have finally turned in her direction in the last six months or so, but they're still much higher than they were before the pandemic. And temperament. Uh, most politicians eventually figure out that they have to to govern. They got to get along with people, or at least smile at the right time. Not Lori Lightfoot. She's in everybody's face. That raises the confidence question. Okay. Well, it's time now for notes from the field. Charlie, let's go to you. One of the things that, that Greg mentioned is there's like 10 people running for mayor of Chicago. It'll wind up, nobody will get 50%. And so there'll be a runoff between the people who maybe got 24% and somebody who got 22%. All the other voters' choices will be out. Well, there's a different way to do that. And the um, suburb of Evanston, north of Chicago, on election day, Overwhelmingly, the voters overwhelmingly approved a measure to use what's called ranked choice voting in city elections. And in ranked choice voting, voters rank candidates from highest to lowest preference. So in theory, if there's 20 people or 10 people on the ballot in Chicago, I go in and say, well, here's my number one, here's my number two, here's my number three. And the, the individual with the fewest votes each time is eliminated, the second choice candidates their first place votes. And that process continues until somebody has 50% of the vote. And the people who, who push this argue that one of the things that, that results in is you wind up with an eventual winner that the majority of the people find acceptable. All right. Uh, Greg? Sean, if there was a, uh, a silver cloud in the, in the silver lining in the huge deck dark cloud that was this election for Illinois Republicans. It was very light voter turnout in the city of Chicago this cycle, particularly uh, in some of the black wards. 
we don't know yet what the, what that means and whether it will, will repeat. Maybe it's that some of uh, Dan Pross ads uh, for Bailey uh, saying, hey, these turkeys, look, your neighborhood is dangerous and these turkeys aren't helping you. Maybe that sunk in. Uh, maybe they just felt there was no reason to turn out. Uh, but if, uh, if, if, if African-American support for Democrats is starting to weaken in Chicago in the same way that nationally uh, Latino support for, for Democrats has started to weaken, that's significant. But it's just soon to, too soon to find out. Uh, let's see what happens in the mayor. That will give us a, a better read, I think. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for State Week. And our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Greg Hines with Crane's Chicago Business. You can get a podcast of our show. It's available at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.